you buy You are now watching Channel 6. It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the Spooktacular Story Show. Don't miss it. And don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. I call this story, This House is Clean. They had one rule, hard and fast. Never take a job on Halloween. But haunted houses were harder to come by, times were tight, and going back to regular cleaning of the purely microbiological variety no longer held the same thrill it once might have. Not after all they'd seen. The world over, there was no other business like theirs. Houses cleaned, top to bottom, plane to plane. That's what it said on the business card, and they'd left many a happy and restful client in their ectoplasmic wake, both the living and the dead. Jules was annoyed when Genevieve took this particular job, but she had to admit they could use the money, and so their preparations began. First, any grievances they had against each other were carefully and calmly aired and resolved. You never knew what a sneaky spirit or hateful haint might try to use against you, and it was always better to go in with nothing to hide. Jules thought Genevieve took more than her share of the food in the communal fridge, and Genevieve thought Jules could stand to keep the office cleaner. It wasn't disgusting for the layperson, but for pros, it was a pigsty. With that out of the way, shaken on and hugged out, Phase two could begin. They ran down the checklist of supplies. Mop, bucket, broom, glass cleaner, sponges, bleach, smudge sticks, holy water, Bible cheat sheets one could strap around the arm, electronic sensing equipment, paper towels, all the usual stuff, and packed it into their van. Genevieve made one stop at the funeral home on their way to the job site, annoying Jules further. We're gonna lose the sun, she complained. But Genevieve needed a quick consult on the state of the veil on this, the supernatural day of days, and who better than the mortician to gauge whether the spooks were stirring. When she finally climbed back into the van, it was well past noon. They were definitely pushing it. Well, what do you say? Jules asked. Uh, good to go, Genevieve replied with a half-smile and then hit the gas. Pulling up a long, winding drive cut through thick evergreens, they stopped and took a moment to size up the house. It was definitely 1800s, though had been relatively well kept as these things went. A ragged for sale sign swung in the breeze with a much newer looking sold glued to the face, indicating the house had been on the market for a while. No surprise, as haunted houses generally catered to a very specific subset of individual, pseudo-thrill-seekers who nevertheless preferred to tell stories of how their new home was formerly inhabited not just by humans, and would much rather not be awoken in the middle of the night by a breath on the neck, a lamp thrown against the wall, or a name whispered gratingly when the house was otherwise empty. Four-bedroom colonial? Jules asked. Five, I think, and kind of a weird Cape Colonial Victorian mashup, Genevieve replied. Of course, Jules said. Well, better get to it. They climbed out of the van, donning male shirts of woven crucifixes topped with heavy sweaters and again with frilly aprons, tied their hair back tightly, tucked in all loose fabric, filled the buckets with soap and holy water, opened all windows and screens from the outside, propped the front door with a few heavy cinder blocks, set up large supplemental work lights which flooded the interior from the safety of the outdoors. Then, after a bit more deep breathing to clear their minds of all but the will to clean, they stepped across the threshold. The temperature dipped by at least 20 degrees, but that's what the sweaters were for. They cranked their special hearing aids, lest they be snuck up upon, and tied open the interior doors as well. It would not do to have a door slam when listening electronically for ghostly footsteps. In order to clean a haunted house properly, one must first clean out the spirits. If one were to clean the shelves and the floors and the fixtures first, ghostly aggravation during the later, for lack of a better term, exorcism, would certainly soil the floors and shelves once again, and likely knock things about in the bargain. 
Jules and Genevieve, each in a corner, started at the bottom and worked their way up as, of course, ghosts leaving an area always move in an upwardly direction. They lit their bundles of sage until a nice sooty smoke was wafting here and there. This would also leave ash, which would later need to be swept and read from their wrist-mounted Bible verses as they slowly wound around the basement, then the first floor, then the second. In the second floor bedroom, Genevieve found remnants of the previous owners, photographs, odd furnishings, etc. These things always creeped her out more than any ghost. They all told stories about how and why the people left their lives behind, literally or figuratively, and they always reminded her of her own childhood bedroom back home when she had returned from college to find boxes stacked in the corners and posters half-hanging off the walls. On that day, she knew she'd never be truly home there ever again. With a shudder, she tipped the photos into the garbage. It would all have to go. Finally, they cleared the third floor, and with the exception of a few doors rattling against their temporary moorings and some flickering interior lights, everything went smoothly. Well, said Jules, so much for Halloween. That was easier than I thought. And then, looking out the open front door, we should finish up just around sunset. Not that it matters now. And with a well-earned high five, they began to clean in a much more traditional fashion. With the exception of the holy mop water, of course. But they found it just put a nice final seal on things, like waterproofing a deck against the inevitability of rain. This time moving top to bottom, they straightened curtains, dusted shelves, cleaned up the cobwebs, mopped and vacuumed, and scrubbed the tile in the old-style bathrooms. The last bit of dust met its end just as twilight enveloped the house, and Genevieve and Jules, confident in a job well done, split up to make their final inspections. Genevieve? A soft call from somewhere in the house. Yeah, Jules, she replied, only for Jules to come find her from the opposite direction. What do you need? Jules asked. You called me. Nuh-uh. With a skeptical glance, Genevieve adjusted her hearing aid. Genevieve. The wispy address played scales up their spines. They looked at each other, removed their ear apparatuses, then moved to the hall, hoping to find a happy home buyer making their own inspection. Instead, they found Genevieve's mother in a room towards the front of the house. Oh, hey, Mrs. S., did you bring us food? Oh, you're so sweet. Oh, you shouldn't close the doors on these jobs, though. Trust me, it's pretty important. Genevieve gently tugged at Jules' sleeve. Jules, there's something I gotta tell you. Yeah, why don't we wrap this up, then we can go eat with your mom. Jules! What? My mom died this morning. It was then that the closed door made sense. There was something else, too. A crack in the wall behind the apparition. A crack behind which an unearthly red glow began to kindle. Jules' eyes grew wide. Did you check the blueprints against the layout? Shit, was all Genevieve could manage. Suddenly the windows slammed shut and the lights flickered wildly. Outside, sparks flew as the generator went up in smoke. The thing in the shape of Mrs. S took on ghastlier proportions, stretching longer, thinner, dark circles blotting out the eyes, hollows sucking the life out of the face and body, the hair and clothes caught in an invisible updraft of raging infernal energy. In a grinding bass it wailed, You never loved me. Immediately, the two women bolted, heading for the windows at the rear of the house. They tried to force them open, but to no avail. As the sound of the forces of darkness, an unpleasant sound altogether, drew closer, Jules grabbed a chair while Genevieve stripped off her apron and sweater, revealing the cross-mail shirt in all its splendor. Jules made to smash the window, but Genevieve interjected, Don't! We won't get paid! Furious, Jules replied, How could you not tell me your mom died? I didn't want to lose the job, Genevieve explained. Do you know how much funerals cost? Plus, I didn't think I was that broken up about it. I mean, we know there's an afterlife, so... No big deal? A thunderous crash from the hall indicated the spirit was too close for comfort. Oh great, we're gonna have to clean this whole place again and it's all your fault, Jules yelled. It's not my fault! Okay, this time it is, but you always blame me! Jules raised the chair again, not caring if the repair costs would have to come out of the final bill, but the ghost in mother form was right outside the window! She dropped the chair and ran, but Genevieve froze as the luminous form phased through the wall, coming inexorably forward. You are a terrible daughter, it chided, enjoying the torment. How could you treat your own mother so poorly? 
Genevieve swallowed and managed to squeak. You're not my mother. No, it asked. Then how do I know you left me all alone? How do I know I sat silent, shadows creeping in, waiting to die, and all the while my ungrateful daughter never even called? It raised its hands to grasp her face, but Jules reappeared in the nick of time. Excuse us, she said, and dragged Genevieve away, the ghostly ghoul's furious shrieks urging them along the darkened hallway. We gotta clean the secret room, Jules shouted as they ran. You got Sage? Silently, Genevieve produced a bundle, and together they slid into the web-strewn crawlspace, pulling the trapdoor shut behind them. Jules removed her crossmail shirt and held it against the back of the door, and immediately there came a pounding as the overlooked spirit crashed against the other side. I don't think I'm okay, Genevieve admitted, and Jules softened for the first time that night. Hey, she said, I'm here for you, we'll get through this, but first, you gotta light that stick. Genevieve fumbled for a lighter, igniting the end of the sage bundle as the red light around them intensified and the banging closed them in on all sides. As Jules, one-handed, flipped open her wrist-mounted Bible pages and began to read, the wails of a thousand unhappy haunts rose up around them, drowning out her voice in a cacophony of agonized, antagonized entreaty. The sound was madness incarnate, but the smoke had saturated nearly every corner of the secret room, spilling through and into the invisible entrance to hell along one side. From the last unclean wall, the ghost of Genevieve's not-mother phased, ready to pull them into whatever lay beyond. I'm sorry, Mom! Genevieve screamed as the smoke enclosed them entirely and the red light evaporated, and all sounds ceased, its absence louder than the din that came before. The secret door opened, spilling the women out into the living room and sealing itself forever behind them. They stood up and brushed the plaster and cobwebs from their clothes, surveying the damage the holdout spirit had wrought in its fury. I think we should just come back in the morning, Jules said. I'm going to need more time than that, Genevieve responded. Oh, right. Yeah, of course, of course. They wrenched open the front door, scaring the life out of the trick-or-treaters who had approached on a dare, packed their things into their van, and drove away home for some much-needed rest. The end. Okay. I, I love the, uh, the, the mops and buckets with soap and holy water. I, I think it's a really strong idea and then i like how you sort of built out from there with the um you know tying up the the doors and you know basically hedging against all the things that ghosts would do even you know making sure they were calm and had no secrets going in and then of course you know the reveal after that that was very good could be scarier i suppose i enjoyed it i wanted it to be scarier because i guess it wasn't really her mom but it was trying to trick her into guilt about her mom who had died that very morning <laughs> right so i guess i wanted her to maybe it would be like a more heavy story but have like a complete meltdown about it or something i wonder if it should be the actual ghost of the mother and that way you get the antagonism but you also get the resolution. Yeah, good notes. And it's a pretty easy fix, too. Take Sweet. out the line where she says, you're not my mother. You're not my mother. <laughs> yeah, that's just, that's just making things worse. <laughs> <laughs> Try new Witchy Wheats. Each cauldron of Witchy Wheat cereal is packed with two scoops of bat wings and rat tails. And don't forget to save broom for the eye of Newt Marshmallows. Part of a magically complete breakfast. Every color but red. Ethan prowled through the circles of streetlight, searching for a blank canvas to make his mark. Nothing was beyond his reach. But he wouldn't spray any random target. He was an artist, after all. He spotted a chunky black Prius with an Uber decal on its windshield, lit up like a bullseye. The old car was spotless, inside and out. Ethan could have chosen one of the new cars nearby, but this one was precious. 
It was a poor person's livelihood. He rolled down the tinted window of his BMW and fired a volley of shots. The cranked-up pressure of his paintball gun ensured that the pellets punched straight through the windshield. He caught a glimpse of Dayglow chaos before the webs of fractured glass hit it from view. Only the Uber driver would get to experience the true impact of his art. Ethan wished he could have been there to see it too. He sped away, trigger finger tightening again in anticipation. Ethan got a thrill each time he tagged a store window or went back to back across a church. But he was also left with a nagging feeling. He hadn't quite figured out how to express his creative vision yet, but he was close. Switching from CO2 to nitro had allowed him to shoot his paintballs farther and faster, but modding the pressure regulator for maximum velocity had added a whole new technique to his style. His art evolved from simple stains and splatters to crumpled metal mailboxes, shattered porch lights, and exploded potted plants. Ethan had parked across from a playground the night before and emptied his ammo. He paused to let the fog of compressed gas clear and listened to his paintballs drip and rattle down the slide. Something squealed in outrage. A possum scurried away in panic, plastered in globs of neon orange and green. Ethan had watched, wide-eyed, as the miserable creature waddled across the street. A living mural. That was the missing piece. He finally knew what was needed to express his vision. The Uber had been merely a warm-up to check his aim and ensure that his gun was working. He was now ready to create his masterpiece. His earliest attempts had been at school, scrawling dirty words on desks and scratching swastikas into bathroom mirrors. The other graffiti writers in Ethan's class rejected him because he didn't have a goofy nickname and he couldn't draw on girly bubble letters. Screw those art school wannabes. Ethan was going to be bigger than Banksy. He was one of those gorilla artists, throwing his shit out on the street. Art was supposed to be dangerous. He was about to remind everyone how dangerous it could be. He studied the people passing through his headlights. There was a security guard on patrol, a fat parody of a cop in a sloppy knockoff uniform. He probably didn't have a weapon, and there was no way he'd be able to chase Ethan down. But he had a better than average chance of clocking the make and model of his car. He tailed a jogger down the street. A woman, all alone at night. What was this crazy bitch thinking? He laid his gun across his lap and stroked the trigger. He imagined his paintball slamming into her sporty Lululemon outfit. She wouldn't outrun this. Ethan noticed with dismay that her skin had already been dyed to a deep burnt orange. He bet those tits were just as fake as her tan, part of a matching set with rubbery lips and a face paralyzed by Botox. She was phony and grotesque enough to be a modern art piece. He set the gun on the passenger seat and sped off. He stopped at a red light and gripped the steering wheel. If only he had red paint. It was the one color that wasn't sold. Paintball companies pretended that the sport wasn't violent by limiting their stock to a bright, cheerful rainbow of wholesome family fun. That missing red paintball was his muse, 
smearing his dreams with images of strangers screaming in the midst of a sudden crimson mess. The light turned green. He spotted an old woman walking a little dog. He smiled. Two for the price of one. His BMW purred past them. He pulled over to set up his shot and waited for them to come to him. If he timed it right, maybe he could make the geezer fall on her scrawny little rat. They took forever, limping and hobbling down the street. The chihuahua looked like a plucked pigeon, bug-eyed and twitching as it teetered on its twisted claws. The old lady looked even worse, a wrinkled and liver-spotted hunchback with no neck and a bow-legged waddle that suggested saggy diapers, a broken hip, or both. Ethan thought of the paintballs back home in his freezer. He had barely resisted the urge to bring them out tonight. When frozen, the pellets hit like musket balls, snapping bones and popping eyeballs with ease. They probably would have been overkill for this brittle hag and her wheezing gremlin. He wiped the film of quickened breath from his windows. The dog squatted. The old woman folded her stiff back down to grab the steaming pile. Now! Ethan clenched the trigger, desperately spraying them with a volley of high-velocity paintballs. The rattle of her battered ribcage reverberated across the asphalt. She staggered, sweater plastered to her crooked back with overlapping coronas of great purple and mustard yellow. She collapsed onto the terrified dog in its puddle of shit. Ethan knew that he should have left them gagging on a thick cloud of burning rubber, but he had to see his work up close. He rolled backwards and peered through the open slit of his blacked-out window. He swallowed a chuckle, half expecting her to wail, I've fallen and I can't get up. She lay on the sidewalk, silent, still, there was a slight movement as the rat dog squirmed out from under her and yapped. There was no response. Ethan shoved his gun off the seat and scanned the rearview mirror. Was she dead? Had anyone seen him? Something gray shifted in the dark. Ethan slowly turned back towards the gap in the window. The old woman peeled her face off the sidewalk and looked at him through brown streaked curtains of hair. The milky blue cores of her eyes radiated with shock and pain, of course, but those primitive reactions were eclipsed by a sublime desolation of trust. The agonized confusion on her face seemed to scream, How could someone do this to a total stranger? What was the world coming to? At last, the art had reflected the artist. Ethan melted into his seat feeling fully seen and understood. He scratched his cheek and turned his BMW towards home. By the time he arrived, the itching had spread across his face in a tight grouping of puffy red hives. He dismissed it as a case of overactive nerves and went to the fridge for a distraction. The cool air soothed his skin as he pulled out a Twinkie and a Mountain Dew. He shut the door. Something rattled in the freezer. It was probably the ice maker. Ethan sat on his couch and held the cold bottle to his cheek. He turned on Call of Duty and took a bite of the Twinkie. It squelched in his mouth. He sputtered and spat it out. 
There is no creamy filling, just runny yellow goo and the bitter tang of chemicals. He took a sip of soda to wash away the taste and immediately spewed it out. It dribbled down his TV screen in thick rivulets of neon green slime. Ethan wiped his chin and gasped. The sores on his face were burning. He rushed to the bathroom to check his reflection. The red spots had bubbled up into blisters, each throbbing with molten liquid and pent-up pressure. He whimpered and turned on the faucet. Thick gouts of blue paint gushed from the sink and spilled over the edge. Ethan screamed and bolted from the bathroom. He slipped on the paint slick and his face collided with the doorframe. Blisters burst down the side of his face, blinding and gagging him with rancid juices. He cradled his head for a moment and then pulled his trembling hands away. They were covered in a stew of garish paint. He screamed again, but the sound clotted in his swollen throat. Paint-filled abscesses, boils, and carbuncles exploded inside his mouth. He dropped to his hands and knees, desperately hacking and spitting to make room for oxygen. His tongue swelled up like a bloated burnt sausage. His airway was plugged tight. Paint oozed into his lungs. Ethan clamped his teeth around his engorged tongue and gnawed into it, popping everything at once. He choked down the surge of hot, rancid drainage in a single gulp. His chest shuddered and his back arched, stomach gurgling. He threw back his head and unleashed a kaleidoscopic jet of vomit down the length of the hall. He inched himself forward like a slug, churning through the slime trail while dribbles of fresh paint erupted from his separating body. An hour later, he reached the kitchen. Ethan used the refrigerator handle to pull himself halfway up. He groped at the freezer door. Frozen paintballs tumbled out and clattered across the tile like steel ball bearings. Ethan shoved the table until his gun landed beside him. He scooped up a handful of icy paintballs and loaded them into the hopper. Curdled squirts of pea-green pulp leaked from his nose and ears. He jabbed the gun barrel under his jaw. Prayers slurred through his lips in trickles of technicolor drool. He tried to close his eyes, but they bulged out. Purple swirls swam across his pupils and stained the whites of his eyes. He rested his bulbous head against the white wall and clenched the trigger. The medical examiner stared, slack-jawed, at the phantasmagoria plastered across the floor, walls, and ceiling. Ethan's headless body slumped against a mural of unprecedented color, contrast, contour, texture, gradation, motion, volume, harmony, assemblage, and scale. The crime scene photographer burned through his memory card, trying to capture it all in high definition. Later, he would attempt to cash in by leaking the official portrait. But every cop in EMT had already posted pictures with their phones. The image went around the internet twice before setting the art world on fire. It was hailed as a masterpiece, on par with Pollock, Basquiat, or Banksy. Ethan had finally made his mark. Based on a true story. Yep. Uh, a few months ago, I was uh, walking my dog at night, and I heard this crack, crack, crack. And then something drilled me in the spine. And 
like I just I just collapsed forward on my face. I knew they weren't gunshots, and it like it took me a second to realize that I had been shot with a paintball gun. And then I looked up as this uh, very nice car with tinted windows peeled out. At the time, I had a bad knee, and I was walking my uh, decrepit old dog. And the thought that, you know, if I had fallen differently, I could have completely blown out my knee. If I had fallen on my dog, I could have broken her back. If I had just looked up, I could have caught a, a paintball in the eye socket, or maybe I would have fallen and my dog would have run in terror into the street. Like, it was such senseless violence against a total stranger with, with zero regard for my life. Uh, it was very upsetting. On an all-new CSI Transylvania, Swimmers are dying and witnesses saw Finn in the water. When the sharks claim they're innocent, only the detective from the Black Lagoon can solve the case. It looks like somebody did this on purpose. Yeah! Top 10 tips to get your body ready. Are you ready to get lean? I mean, absolutely shredded. If you're dedicated to health and fitness, you spent years maintaining your body in order to enjoy an active lifestyle. But what about the afterlife? You can take it with you. A rich and fulfilling afterlife is possible for those willing to put the work in ahead of time. Here are 10 tips for becoming a spooky, scary skeleton. 1. Rock solid. Strong skeletons are made of strong bones. Weight-bearing exercises will build up your bone density and strengthen your ligaments that hold your joints together. A skeleton's teeth are also on display, so you'll want to avoid sugar and stay on top of dental hygiene. Be sure to meet your hydration needs now, because anything you drink as a skeleton will pour right through you. Most importantly, calcium, calcium, calcium. 2. Feel the music. Learn an instrument. At a minimum, every proper skeleton should be proficient with the xylophone. Once you have mastered the rudiments of percussion, every bone becomes a drumstick, every skull becomes a drum. Did you know that skeletons don't need lips or lungs to play flutes or brass instruments? Doot doot. Three. Use your head. If you want mad skull skills, up your game and start bowling. Dust off the old hacky sack. Practice basketball tricks and free throws or learn juggling. It is important to commit these skills to muscle memory before your muscle is gone. Four, get it together. Learn anatomy. It will be crucial if you need to reassemble your skeleton. Once you know the rules, you can break them. With 206 bones to play with, you'll be able to rearrange them in countless ways to express your own unique style. 5. Skeleton Crew Spooky skeletons spend the majority of their time above ground dancing, playing music, and pulling highly coordinated pranks. It's hard to practice synchronized movements alone, so you should network with other would-be skeletons. If you can form lifelong bonds, you may even be buried side by side. Teamwork makes the scream work. It's never too early to learn choreography, but you may want to wait before swapping craniums. 6. 
grave matters. To find a thriving cemetery, consider things like weather and landscape. Nobody wants to claw their way through frozen ground or have their bony antics missed against the backdrop of snow. Look for loose soil and bent creepy trees with a healthy population of owls, crows, and bats. Take note of tombstones. Are they good for hiding behind and jumping on? 7. The Eyes Habit It is rare to become a skeleton with your eyes intact, which is why this feature is so striking. If you think your eyes will go the way of all flesh, getting a glass eye now would be an investment in your future. 8. Crawl in together now. Another easy way to accessorize your look is with an exotic pet like a rat, snake, or spider. Make sure to specify in your will that your beloved pet should be buried with you. 9. Spine up. Before you die, make sure that you have registered with the selective service. You may be drafted into the skeleton war. If you do not wish to be buried in chainmail, you should at least pack a shield and weapon in your coffin. Spears and swords are classics because they work even when rusty. 10. Live fast, die young. Try not to die too violently. You only have one skeleton. Sure, a single crack in the skull can be stylish, but remember how hard you've worked for this. Don't cremate, appreciate. And when they close that coffin lid, try to get some rest. You won't have a lot once you become a spooky, scary skeleton. Why correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't that story appear in your anthology, We Bleed Orange and Black? Indeed it does. It's one of the unsung stories of yesteryear. Available where all books are sold. This Halloween season, there is only one place that knows what scares you. Spooky Drew's Judgment Day. Please rise, court is now in session. You could be in there for something very simple and someone gets your paperwork mixed up. You think you're crazy because everyone else is telling you you're someone else and that this misdemeanor is now a felony. And you're like, what the hell? Spooky Drew's still terrifying. It's criminal. Genuine Soil from Dracula's castle. Tommy trudged down the hallway and frowned as his socks landed in an unfamiliar puddle of shadow. Another lamp had been unplugged, more detail chipped from the corners of his home. Empty squares glowed along the walls, phantoms of the picture frames that once held smiling faces. He walked to his room and shuddered at the echo of his own footsteps. They bounced back wrong, making his skin itch with the reflections of missing things. His aquarium and his desk had both been drained of his favorite things. Their hollow husks sat in the corner, cobwebbed in plastic wrap. The closet, which had overflowed with a lifetime of toys, games, and hand-me-downs, was now an empty cavern, save for a few dangling bear hangers. He had argued with his mom about the move, they had argued about bringing his pet fish, and they had just finished a very loud argument about packing the rest of his room. Putting it off had not postponed things like he had hoped. Now it was very late, and they were leaving in the morning.
he climbed the ladder of his bunk bed to reach his glow-in-the-dark creature from the black lagoon poster he peeled at it tenderly working along the edges cringing every time he heard a fraction of a rip he managed to free the first tacky blue corner he let out a sigh of relief the rest of the poster suddenly sagged and split apart leaving tatters of itself behind tommy flopped onto the bed tears worked their way towards his eyes stopping first to churn in his belly he reached into his shirt and pulled out a small coffin-shaped medallion he tucked it back in and gave it a little pat to feel the smooth plastic case against his chest there was no way he was going to pack this up or ship it off with the rest of his stuff it contained genuine soil from dracula's castle from the moment he'd seen that bold-faced ad in the back of his werewolf by night comic book he'd been spellbound he'd smashed his piggy bank torn open his birthday cards and begged his mom for money she had directed him to the rusty old push mower in the back of the garage it took hours of grueling grass-stained work but he eventually earned nine ninety five plus two dollars for shipping and handling six weeks later he had his very own amulet filled with dust from dracula's domain it came with a certificate of authenticity declaring the soil within to be pure romanian earth scooped directly from the castle ruins of that most infamous tyrant vlad the impaler whom the world would one day call dracula his friends had been totally blown away by it and even the cool kids in school couldn't hide their curiosity about tommy's relic a rapid tapping chiseled at his bedroom window this was quite unexpected because tommy's room was on the second floor he rolled over and saw a pale face peering through the glass the amulet slipped from tommy's shirt and dangled over the edge of the bed the stranger's dark eyes snapped to it like magnets he moved his mouth closer to the window and parted his teeth may i enter tommy shook his head the pale man pointed a dagger-like finger at tommy's necklace i believe that you possess something which belongs to me tommy's mind reeled was this the guy who sold the amulet maybe his name was on the certificate of authenticity he couldn't remember which box he'd put it in the soil child give it to me tommy gripped the amulet no way mister scram the pale stranger lay his forehead against the glass and released a heavy sigh tommy noticed that it did not fog the glass hey who are you anyway i am dracula tommy clung to his bunk bed his friends were going to freak out when he told them about this maybe he ought to freak out first how do i know you're real show me some id or something dracula's lip curled slightly revealing the thorny tips of his canines tommy shivered uh whoa um okay uh, so uh, what are you doing out there you carry there around your neck a pinch of earth from my home it has called to me and i must answer for i am in a strange land and i grow weary tommy reached down to double check the lock on the window you can't come in right 
not unless I invite you in. Dracula squinted and cupped a white hand to his pointy ear. Say again, unless you... What? Duh, unless... Tommy rolled his eyes. I invite you in. Dracula's smile unfurled like a bat taking flight. His razor-sharp fingers carved under the locked window sill and effortlessly dragged it up. Tommy hid under his covers. No fair! The vampire paused at the open window. I apologize for my deception, but the hour is growing late. If the sun were to find me perched here, I would surely be consumed by its rays. Courtesy dictates that I must warn you. This house would also share my fate. Tommy scooted backwards. Then go someplace else. Dracula gestured for him to lay the amulet in his bristly palm. Tommy lifted the amulet from around his neck and held it out. He hesitated. But it's mine, he whined. I bought it with my own money. This cost me nine ninety-five plus two dollars shipping and handling. I have the certificate and everything. Dracula lowered his heavy olive eyelids and nodded. I shall not beg. I am a Wallachian prince of the house of Basarab, a lord born of Voivode Marrow. I possess land, titles, and a great many things beside. I shall see that you are handsomely rewarded. What is your desire? Venetian gold, crimson velvet, purple silk? Or perhaps you would bid me to destroy your enemies? Tommy rubbed his face. I don't even know what I want. Just leave and try not to burn the place down, will you? He lowered the amulet to Dracula. The vampire clasped his hand over it and gave a curt bow. Very well. Your reward shall be a boon to be granted later. Tell me, what is your name, noble one? It's Tommy. Tommy Jablonski. Dracula tilted his head slightly, signifying the end of the deal. He turned towards the window to leave. He thrust his cape up to shield himself from the dim blue tinge bleeding across the horizon. He ducked his head and hissed, not with the force of a feral cat or spitting cobra, merely the tired wheeze of a sagging balloon. Just days ago, Tommy's room had been covered floor to ceiling, feathered like a cozy nest with all of his favorite things. He couldn't bear to see someone shrink in despair in this place that had always been his shelter. He hopped down and yanked the curtain shut. You can stay, he said, adding with a shrug. We're moving away in the morning. Dracula lowered his cape. I once again find myself in your debt, Tommy Jablonski. Tommy stuffed some spare sheets under the edges of the top bunk to create a dark four-poster bed below. These bunks won't fit in our new place, so you're welcome to them. Dracula carefully pried the amulet open. The familiar fragrance of his native earth rose to meet him. His throat bobbed once, and the slightest sigh escaped between his fangs. He sprinkled the dirt across the bottom bunk and then flitted inside so swiftly that he did not rustle the hanging sheets. Tommy climbed back up and settled onto his pillow, letting it cradle his head one last time. He sighed and poked at the blue blobs of adhesive on his wall. Dracula? The vampire remained silent. Hey, Dracula? Are you awake? Go to sleep, Tommy Jablonski.
Tommy rolled over. What are you thinking about? Dracula did not reply. Not at first. Then his sonorous voice floated up in the dark. I am painting the vault of my mind with visions of my beloved Carpathian Mountains, where every peak is a queen, adorned in rich furs of pure white snow and draped in a fine lace of ivory forests. How she shimmers in the dying light, pink as fresh peaches. How the winds and the wolves all howl for her. How the mists wrap around her curves and cling like a lover to her valleys. Tommy plucked a feather from his pillow and sighed. Did I tell you that we're moving? It sucks. I don't want to go. All my friends are here. The place we're going... It's flat and gray, and we don't know anybody, and I'll have to start over in a new school, and I can't even bring my fish. It's so unfair. He pressed his face into the pillow to hide his tears. He surfaced and took a thick breath. I know what I want now. I want you to make me a vampire. I want to live here forever. His plea faded into the dark. The bed below shifted. Tommy flinched. I am bound to give you that which you desire, Tommy Jablonski, but know this, a vampire has no home. I conjure those memories of my native land in the foolish hope that I might return, if only in dreams. Yet the truth is that the dead do not dream. They can only lay in dirt. Suddenly he was there, floating over Tommy's bed. You would dwell in eternity? Tommy froze, seeing nothing but large curved fangs gleaming in the dark. Dracula peeled the bedsheet from Tommy's neck and opened his mouth to say, Go to this new place and keep your kinfolk close. Become a man and seek new lands to conquer. Drink deeply of this life and grow old and wise, so when that day comes for you to rest your bones in the earth, you will have truly found a place to dwell in eternity. He placed the empty amulet around Tommy's neck and slipped back down to the bottom bunk. Tommy stayed awake with those words wheeling through his head. He tugged at the scraps of poster stuck to the wall until the words folded their black wings and roosted inside him. He rolled over and closed his eyes. In the morning, he dragged his desk, boxes, and bags out into the hallway and locked the bedroom door behind him. He helped his mother finish loading the station wagon. They packed their snacks and took their final bathroom breaks. There was nothing left to do but leave. Tommy knelt in the front yard and scooped a bit of soil into his coffin-shaped amulet. He tucked it into his shirt and patted it against his chest. Then he climbed into the passenger seat, smiled at his mother, and said, Let's go. That Dracula's a hell of a guy. What a mensch. He's a mensch. It was good. It was a heartwarming Dracula. <laughs> Again, uh, similar themes of leaving home and uh, ruined posters. <laughs> yeah, a lot of... Uh, eerie synchronicities as always yeah i saw this uh article about these uh genuine amulets full of uh soil from dracula's castle and i was like 
well, of course he has to rest in his native earth. And then I was like, all right, kid buys the amulet from the back of a comic book. Dracula comes. He needs it. And I was like, yeah, but what's it about? I was like, well, it's about home. It's about homesickness. Mm-hmm. I thought about having him like go back and have like one more encounter with Dracula. It, it kind of felt like the ending lacked Dracula. Macula. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it had a Lacula of Dracula. But I kind of feel like Dracula was the metaphor for the homesickness. And then once he'd like made up his mind to move, he didn't need to go back and like engage with Dracula. No, that would have been superfluous. But what's Dracula going to do? Just hang out in that bunk bed? Yeah, probably kill all the people in that town. <laughs> kill all of his friends and teachers. We've reached the end of our broadcast day. Channel 6 wishes you a good night and a happy Halloween.